Hello and welcome to the podcast for the December 2011 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined once again by my colleague from TLO, Lanlan Smith. In a moment we're going to hear an interview I did with the author of a paper in this month's issue and this concerns HLA matching for umbilical cord blood transplantation in the treatment of leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome. But just before that, Lanlan, perhaps you could give us some other highlights from the issue. We have several hematology papers in the issue this month. In addition to the study you just mentioned on umbilical cord blood transplantation, we have research articles on transplantation in multiple myeloma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, HDAC inhibitors for treating Hodgkin's lymphoma, and a personal view by Kreidel and Dietrich on preventing CNS relapse in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I'd also like to highlight a meta-analysis by Katecha and colleagues looking at meningioma, which is a rare disease in children and adolescents, but relatively common in adults where it is regularly treated with upfront radiotherapy. This work is particularly important because it highlights the danger of applying clinical data suitable for adults to the pediatric setting. The authors demonstrate in an individual patient data analysis that there is no significant benefit for upfront radiotherapy for children and adolescents with meningioma, which of course can have various serious adverse effects on the developing brain. In another article by Elter and colleagues, they examined the anti-CD52 monoclonal antibody alituzumab in combination with fludarabine for the treatment of relapsed and refractory CLL in a phase 3 trial. They were able to show the combination treatment resulted in better progression-free survival than fludarabine alone. Finally, our editorial this month looks at tapping our immune potential to realize the ultimate goal of training the immune system to eradicate malignant cancer cells. So please do look out for these and other papers in the issue. Thanks very much, Lanlan. And now let's hear from Dr. Mary Epin from the Medical College of Wisconsin in the United States. She's one of the authors of a paper, and this is looking specifically at HLA matching within the context of umbilical cord blood transplantation for leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome. Dr. Epin, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Oncology. Can you tell us why is it now important to be looking at umbilical blood transplantation in this field? And what are the usual criteria for doing such transplantation? Hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is potentially a life-saving treatment procedure for a number of people with leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome. If you don't have a matched related family donor, most physicians opt for a matched volunteer unrelated donor. Unfortunately, only about 70% of Caucasians of European descent have an acceptably matched unrelated donor, and this proportion is significantly lower when you consider patients of non-Caucasian origin. So umbilical cord blood transplantations for the last almost 15 to 20 years has been considered an acceptable graft source when you don't have a matched family donor or a suitably matched unrelated donor. One of the advantages of umbilical cord blood transplantation has been the fact that the degree of mismatch allowed between the patient and the cord blood unit is much higher than what you would normally allow when you're considering taking a graft from an adult donor. The usual selection criteria for an umbilical cord blood unit considers matching at HLA A, B, and DRB1, whereas if you are considering an unrelated adult donor, you would look at A, B, C, 
and DRB1. Thank you very much. So specifically then, what were the, the aims of this current study? This is a, a retrospective analysis, isn't it? It is a retrospective study, and if you're actually trying to look at his, you know, donor and recipient histocompatibility issues, the best way to address is, is using a large retrospective database. Historically, one of the disadvantages of cord blood transplantation has been a higher proportion of patients dying from complications related to the transplantation procedure, and that's always been an obstacle. And there are several groups that are looking at various methods, increasing the cell dose that's delivered, and a number of other graft engineering techniques to overcome this obstacle. Now, we chose to look at histocompatibility because when you do adult-unrelated donor transplant, you always consider whether the donor and the patient are matched at the HLAC locus. And matching at that locus lowers death from transplant-related complications. So the question was, we don't look at it ordinarily in the setting of umbilical cord blood transplantation, but if you were to consider matching at C, would there be a difference between a transplant that's matched at C compared to a transplant that's not matched at C. So in other words, you're really looking to apply similar criteria to non-core transplantation by looking at the significance. You are specifically looking for the significance of HLAC matching between donor and recipient. Yes, that's correct. Do tell us a little bit more about uh, how you ran the study and then we'll go on and discuss the results. We were able to identify approximately 800 donor-recipient pairs who had received an umbilical cord blood transplantation and for whom HLAC typing was available. It's important to remember that these transplants were not done considering HLAC typing. So the typing was either done and available through one of the cord blood banks, which was the case when we got patients from, where we got cases from Europe through the Eurocord registry. And in North America, the National Maradona Program retrospectively typed donor and patient samples that they had for us to determine whether the transplants were matched or mismatched at C. Typically, when we look at HLA matching and its effect on survival after transplantation, we take into consideration the other factors that normally affect survival after transplantation. So all of the results presented in this article are really adjusted for the other factors such as patient age, disease status, all factors you would ordinarily expect to influence the outcome of a transplant. We really looked at the effect of whether considering matching at the C locus would impact survival after transplantation, and we focused on death from transplant-related complications. If you were going to see an effect, that's where you would see the difference. Do go on and summarize the key findings from the study. We found that transplant-related mortality was lowest when an umbilical cord blood was matched to the recipient at ABC and DRB1, just like you would see if you were doing an adult unrelated donor transplant. When you have a cord blood unit that's mismatched at one locus, considering AB or DRB1, an additional mismatch at C was an independent risk factor for transplant-related mortality. When the mismatch occurred at C and at DRB1, that was when you had your highest risk of 
death from transplant-related complications. Once you went beyond two loci mismatches and got into three or four, i.e. multiply mismatched transplants, you really did not see an effect of C. And this is fairly consistent with what we saw in the adult, in all of the adult papers, where you see your effect if you are matched. There's a difference between that and a single mismatch and a double mismatch. And once you go beyond that, you do so poorly that you really don't detect significant differences between a three mismatch or a four mismatch or a five mismatch. If you were matched at C and matched at everything else, you had your best outcome. If you were mismatched at a single locus and then you added C, that made it worse. But it was particularly bad when the mismatch occurred at C and DRB1. Some clear and important findings there. What do you think are the implications? Because this potentially obviously changes the way that umbilical blood transplantation and, and uh, typing should be done. Yes, it does. It, it certainly would alter present selection criteria. One of our recommendations is to incorporate looking at the HLAC locus when you search for a unit. Obviously, if you can find a unit that's matched at ABC DRB1, that's your best option. But when such a unit's not available, and it often won't be available, try and avoid a mismatch at HLAC and DRB1. When you change the selection criteria, it also requires that core blood banks have C-typing readily available when physicians and transplant center coordinators are searching for a unit. It's not readily available now. As a way to overcome this problem, what people can do is they can select units that are matched to the patient at the HLA-B locus. Matching at B will ensure that most, but not all, are matched at C because of the linkage disequilibrium between HLA-C and HLA-B loci. And once you select a unit that's matched to the patient at B, typically of the units selected, you would then request the cord blood bank for what's known as confirmatory typing, i.e. you confirm the typing of the cord one more time with the patient. And at that time, you can request or you can perform HLAC typing, which will really confirm whether the unit is matched to the patient. A couple of more general questions. How common, how easy is it for the banking of cord blood to be done? I know that in the UK, for example, it's not routinely done on the UK National Health Service. So what's it like in other countries? How easy or difficult is it actually to get cord banking done? Because obviously this has to be done around birth. It's done around birth. It's voluntary. I can speak for the United States. In the United States, the public cord blood banks are actually in publicly funded by the United States government. There are banks located all over the country. Collections historically not been a problem because most of the corporate banks have their collection hospitals where their staff go, they counsel the mothers, consent is obtained, and personnel from the corporate bank actually collect the unit and the unit is subject to quality control. And finally, just to perhaps translate this in, into a real-life setting, if we make an assumption that a, that a good match has been found, and let's say the best-case scenario where you've got the HLA typing, which is 
matched across all four loci, the ones that you've just discussed. What typically would then be the process in terms of the recipient and, and how dramatically could, could it affect the treatment of something like leukemia? You know, the transplant-related mortality, if you have a matched cord blood unit across the four loci that we talked about, would actually lead to about a transplant-related mortality rate of about 10%. If you allow for a single mismatch, about 19%. If you allow for two mismatches, it's probably in the order of about 25%, 25 to 30%. There is a big difference, but when you select a unit or when you're considering transplant, there are a number of factors that you consider. If you have a patient with really aggressive leukemia, you really don't have the time to wait until the perfect unit shows up. So transplant has to be done urgently, and you have to make do with the best possible unit. So if you search and you don't have a matched, a fully matched unit, then you look at your various options as far as the mismatch. And if you can, avoid a mismatch at DRB1 and HLAC locus. But if you can't, then you, you have to go with what you have. You, you don't deny a transplant simply because you don't have the ideal unit waiting for you. And let's choose a successful scenario now. A successful transplant has happened. How quickly can the transplant and the production of healthy blood cells start dealing with the disease? How quickly can that happen? Well, the new cells should grow within about two to three weeks. You will have evidence of a regenerating marrow by the end of the third week, and most definitely by the end of the fourth week from the day of transplant. If you don't, at that point, you really need to consider various options, and there are several, and it, a lot of it will depend on the treating physician as to whether you search for another donor. You run a lot of tests to make sure that the graft hasn't taken. But ordinarily, most people would show signs of recovery anywhere from about 15 to 21, 22 days. Well, it's a very interesting study and a very important study based on the findings we've just discussed with implications in the field of hematology. But in the meantime, from the Medical College of Wisconsin, but currently on the line in Paris in France, many thanks indeed, Dr. Mary Epin, for talking to the Lancet Oncology. Thank you very much. And do look out for the comment alongside this research article. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. See you next month.